Welcome to the Humane Roundup Podcast, where we share all the exciting stories about animal cruelty investigations, dangerous animals, and amazing rescues. Find out what goes on inside of animal shelters and all the current trends in the animal welfare industry. Now, here is your host, Daniel Edinger. Good morning, happy Friday, even though we're recording on Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, that is. What's going on, Bishop? It's flipping cold here. (laughs) You said it was what? Negative 21 degrees? Yeah, with a negative, last I looked like negative 40 wind chill. That's cold. Yeah. That's cold. You're not working today, are you? I'm, I, we are not leaving the house today. What happens with these cold, cold days? Do you get a lot of welfare checks, dogs left outside without proper housing? I wouldn't say a lot, but we do get a fair share of them. Um, and some of them are still unreasonable when you're looking at the fact that it is a Malamute that has spent its entire life outside. Um, but I have had some that, you know, hound dogs with the short hair that, you know, shouldn't be outside and stuff like that. Not too much of the chihuahuas, which I'm thankful for. Like, people are more conscientious with their small dogs, but... Yeah. Well, that is flipping cold. Are you going to watch Super Bowl at all today or nah? No, I don't nah. do Super Bowl. I, I'll do the parties sometimes if it's people I enjoy being around, but I'm not going anywhere today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'll probably have some of the Super Bowl on. I, I'm sure some of our listeners are like, eh. And then some of them are like, go Chiefs or go Buccaneers. And our next guest lives in uh, Kansas City. So that'll be interesting to get his take on on later today. Uh, if he's going to, I'm sure he'll be watching. So, but before we introduce him, I got to tell you, do you don't do on call, do you? Yes and no. If it's significant enough, they'll call me in for it, but it's got to be something worthwhile. Otherwise the officers just take it for me. If it's a very basic call. Yeah. Something they can handle. Well, we do on call. We rotate. So every week, uh, Every week that, you know, I'm usually on call two to maybe four times a month, depending on our coverage of of officers. And over the last several months we've been on call, I've been pretty lucky. I've been able to sleep through the night and get paid for it. That's one of my favorite things in the whole world. Like who doesn't like who doesn't like sleep first and foremost, but to get paid to sleep. Right. I'd be all for that. (laughs) Uh, So several it's literally been several months since I've actually had a call out. and. I did. I got a call out uh, two nights ago and it just beat me up. It was, it was the simplest call out. It was just picking up two dogs owner had to go to the hospital or whatever, but uh, it just, it was 1230. So I was like in middle mid sleep and didn't get home till about two 30. And then I have to eat. I can't go right to bed. Like I have to get some food in my body for whatever reason. I'm sure it's a mental thing. And then I had to get up to work at the early shift the next day at seven. Oh no. So it pretty much three to seven is when I slept and it just beat me up yesterday and I was, it was a rough day. So I, I went to bed early and here we are. So what you're saying, what you're saying is you're getting old. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> and it's interesting. Like I, I talk all the time how I don't, I really don't mind on call at all. I, I don't, uh, I just, I think there's like, I'm hoping, I'm hoping <laughs> there's like a rhythm that comes with actually being called out. Cause it's been so long. Sure. That, it beat me up. 
last night so or the night before but so i'm here for, i'm at the do podcast take, do you take your vehicles home then yeah uh it's optional uh, i absolutely take it home because i don't want to a I, I don't want it to extend my response time and then b like why waste my gas going back and getting the vehicle if i don't need right. to right which uh, is actually a little bit of an interesting concept because um we were talking off air about a post that was put on one of the Facebook groups about somebody being threatened um, in court, which by by taking your vehicle home, you're opening yourself up to people knowing where you live because the vehicle's sitting outside your house. I so know. that's a really here here's another reason for you know wearing your vest and protecting yourself, you know, to tie in last week's. Yeah, yeah, that got a lot. Of, if you haven't listened to last week's episode with the KC Pet <clears throat> Project, that's definitely got a lot of buzz in some of our social media groups on on some of the command presence stuff and or uh, personal safety equipment. And uh, please check out episode sixty six last week and you know give us your thoughts on what they had to say. You know, the KC Pet Project seems to be doing some really great stuff. Uh, I think that they're coming from the enforcement side. Uh, there are some things that, you know, I'd like to have them back on and maybe we can discuss more of, of their thoughts as they get further into it. They've only been doing yeah. it for about a month and, you know, I'm not here to criticize their work. I think they're doing some valuable work, but I also think there's some questionable things that were said that from a, I, from a safety standpoint, I would want as an individual. And I, I don't think they ruled it out. I think it was more so they'd like to hear about feedback from their officers if that's something that they they would need it sounds like they would consider it that's what i got from us and, and maybe maybe to the people that are you know starting it up and revamping the program just really don't know what to expect within their communities and things like that yet it's very fair, um, yeah. And so maybe once they've been up and running they'll realize like oh that was kind of a dangerous situation like for me, it took, I don't know, three or four years and a direct situation that I was involved in to get a baton. Wow. But I had, a, I had a dog trying to bite me. Had I not been wearing my vest, I would have been bitten in the stomach by this dog. I had to deploy a, a baton yesterday. I didn't use it. And sometimes just having it and deploying enough. So I knock on a door in a, you know, a kid that's probably six, seven years old just opens the door and this dog just flashes out at me. And like, oh. and my, my reaction is like, I always get like, I always give myself enough space. So I'm never right next to the door. I was probably a good 10 feet away, but the dog came within two feet. And, you know, as it got close, I deployed the baton and just extended my arm. And my body language along with the baton was enough to keep the dog at bay. And then the, uh, older sister came in out and took the dog inside. So it's, you know, it's necessary. We're going to table this discussion for another episode because I feel we could yeah. talk about this and then our guest would be, <laughs> would be like, wait, what am I here for? So, uh, before we, before we bring him on, I just want to remind everyone to check out our Facebook page that is Humane Roundup. And we also have a private Humane Roundup group that you can join as well. And, and uh, remember to check out our website, humaneroundup.com. Don't forget to follow H.O. Bishop, that is Humane Officer Bishop on Facebook and the Animal Protection Officer Daniel on Facebook and Instagram. So, And I changed my Instagram to H.O. Bishop too. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> oh, wait, wrong part of the season. It's not Christmas anymore. So. No, it's the PD ho, remember? 
PD ho. <laughs> Check out a few episodes prior where we name all the names. Get that reference. So thanks for joining us for episode 67. Let's introduce our next guest, who is Brent Tolner. He is the senior director of the national programs with the Best Friends Animal Society. Brent, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for hello. having me on. Hey, hello. Yeah. So how cold is it in Kansas City right now? It is a balmy seven, which wow. uh, I felt was cold until I talked to Ashley earlier. And now I... <laughs> No, I feel like I, it's shorts and t-shirts weather. You know, when it was about seven degrees up here, I was like, oh, it's really not too bad today. <laughs> so though the episode won't air till Friday after the Super Bowl, we're recording the morning of, are you doing any Super Bowl parties? Um, it is a stay-at-home party of just my wife and I uh, watching the game. Uh, that makes sense. Dude, so we're, we're going to play it safe, but we, we're definitely going to be tuned in. I'm sure a lot of people are doing that, especially with the COVID restrictions. And maybe it's kind of virtual this year where you're texting and doing some FaceTimes and stuff with people. So there, there's definitely a nice buzz around the city, though, when you're out and about. So <laughs> that's good. Maybe it can help warm your city up a little bit today. <laughs> All right. So let's hear a little bit about what you do with Best Friends Animal Society and, and kind of what just a general overview of of the organization yeah so you know best friends animal society it's a 40 year old organization but uh, about four years ago uh, the organization made the decision uh, to really focus on a goal of trying to get the entire country to no kill um, by 2025 and we can get into some of that if you want to but we define that as a 90 percent benchmark um, as a recognition of no-kill, knowing that really it's more about the philosophy of saving every healthy and treatable animal that comes into our shelters. Um, but we use that 90% ben as a benchmark just for measurement. And so we made the goal of of doing that and helping other shelters get to no-kill by 2025 and getting to that 95% or 90% threshold by 2025. And so my team and uh, it's my team and a couple of adjacent teams are really the ones that are out there working with shelters and helping them implement some of the programming that um, will help them save more animals lives. So improving their adoption programs, helping them with transfers if that's uh, relevant, helping them with, you know, kind of the manage and take procedures so that animals that don't need to come into the shelter don't have don't end up there. Um, working with field officers on some of the return to owner in the field, which I know is something you talk a lot about uh, here uh, and, and that kind of service performance out there uh, for ACOs. Um, so it's just really a comprehensive help shelters and the people who work there um, to save more animals' lives so that uh, they're not dying in the shelter unnecessarily. Can you Can you speak to how many shelters you currently work with and what what capacity is that is it typically someone comes out to visit is it more just administratively through emails and phone calls what does that look like so yeah it's really a diverse group of things that we offer so we probably have i would say about 130 shelters right now that we're actively working with and that ranges from i mean so we probably work with more than that because we also have a huge resource library of just things that people can read sure. um, at the network.bestfriends.org website, which is where all of our kind of B2B stuff lives, uh, where the regular best friend site is more consumer facing. Um, 
so we have a lot of resources that we share out with that and through our conference and through the various uh, communications channels. But then in actually working with folks, it goes across the board. Like we do a lot of phone consultation that's obviously been huge uh, during COVID, but we also do on-site shelter assessments. And so we'll have a team of two or three people that will come down and spend two or three days at a shelter, really analyzing all this stuff that's going on and provide a written report of here are some recommendations, and not only the written report, but the ongoing coaching uh, to help with challenges of implementing new programs. Um, we've also got a mentorship program. So if there's something that you really want to work on as a shelter and need help on, uh, like for instance, customer service, um, and like on the adoption floor and just having, you know, more of a conversation-based approach versus a screening mentality, uh, when it comes to adoptions, you know, we may pair them up with somebody who does that at one of our, uh, adoption centers across the country so that they can kind of coach them through what that really looks like on the ground. And then it scales all the way up. So we have right now, I think, 13 uh, shelters that we actually have full-time best friend staff that is that are working there for six months to a year, um, knowing that those were places that had a pretty big gap between where they wanted to be and uh, where they were, and it was going to take more hands on deck and what's going to take a lot of just somebody being there every day to help um, implement that new programming, because it's hard. Like, nobody's not doing this stuff because they're not busy. Um, so having somebody there on on hand and on site to uh, help coach them, mentor them, and implement the new programming themselves uh, has been a, a real value to some of those organizations that, again, had a larger gap between where they were and, and where they're going. So it really is tailored around how much help the sheltering organization needs. So, uh, Brent, what would you say because you've got this goal of you know having the country at a no-kill capacity by 2025 it's 2021 where do you think we're at with that so we're still pulling together the 2020 data uh which will be a lot different but uh 2019 we had a gap of 625,000 animals that we felt well that 625,000 animals was the difference between where we were and every shelter in the country having a 90% save rate. Now that number is probably going to be close to half of that. Uh, so we're probably looking somewhere in the three to 400,000 range this year uh, between some of the new programs that we had. And then a lot of the changes with COVID, a lot of shelters just weren't taking in the volume of animals that they had. And so it'll be really interesting, you know, looking long-term how that plays out. But um, confident saying in 2019, the gap was, 625,000. Nice. And and if you think about that, like it wasn't that long ago, maybe five or six years ago that we were talking about one and a half million, uh, 1. Sure. 1.7 million animals. So it's, we, there's been a lot of progress made uh, in the last 10 years and particularly even in the last five. This may be something that you're already doing is as we look at, if we looked at a map, there's, there's specific areas on the map in this country that euthanasia is more prevalent, right? And then there's areas of the country where they can't get puppies, they can't get dogs, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that transfer, that, that ability to push animals up, well, I say that because I'm talking from the south to the north, and that's typically <laughs> what it looks like in most places. 
is it's a it's a combined effort in that sense. Does best friends have a hand in working with rescue groups or transfer partners, getting these animals moved from these states with a, a higher higher kill rate than you know the states like Connecticut that can't find a dog? So certainly we do. Uh, we don't do a lot of the transport ourselves, but we do a lot of connecting of people um, who have a, a surplus of animals to the folks who don't. Uh, and you're right, there's a lot of that south to north area. Um, our main focus is to, in addition to that, like we see transfer as more of a short-term solution to a long-term problem and long-term we need to solve the challenges that are in the community so they're not necessarily relying on others and that includes you know community services like you know spay and neuter in the community just to get population numbers down but then also um helping the shelter support getting some of the programs in place so they can get more community engagement in their sheltering operations through adoptions and fostering and and donations uh, so, yeah, we, we really try to focus the majority of our work on helping the shelters, but we also obviously see transport as a huge opportunity for immediate life saving across that. And to your point about where there are huge areas of um, where a lot of the the death is happening, the unnecessary deaths are happening, is there are five states that make up 50% of that number. Wow. So, Which states are those? I'm curious. So California is the largest. And you'll note that some of this is population-based. So California has a huge population. And so therefore, there are a lot of animals, but it also means a lot of animals are dying. So California is currently number one. Texas is number two. Um, North Carolina, which I think surprises a lot of people, it's number three. Florida is number four. And Louisiana is number five. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Um, and I had a question. Where did it go? Let me follow up with, with something okay. really quick while you, while you find that question. Brent, can you tell me, we're going to jump into some of the, oh, so the animal, the field services. And I, I think from this stage on, you'll hear me refer to it as animal protection services or field services in that sense. Some of our listeners may still prefer animal control. And that's a, another soapbox that we don't have time for on this episode. We've covered it before and, and we'll cover it again. Can you talk to, so specifically in the city and county of Denver, there is a law. We have a law that it is required that your animal over the age of six months is spayed or neutered unless you apply for an intact permit. And there are some, uh, some you know, requirements to do that. I, does, I think that helps in that overpopulation, right? So you talked about having that ability to have low cost spay and neuter facilities, but also having it and, and not that I want to get, you know, go down that road of like, well, I'm just going to write you a ticket for not doing it, but it gives that tool from an enforcement side, like, Hey, you know, this fine could be X amount of dollars. However, let's set up an appointment. Let's get this done. And if you don't do it, then, then you potentially could get fined for it. Does best friends have a take on, on that having, you know, I don't know if we'd have like a national law necessarily to spay and neuter your pet. I mean, our guy from uh, the, the great show, The Price is Right, you know, <laughs> Bob Barker always told us to spay and neuter our pets several, several, several years ago. So what is, is there a take that Best Friends has on that nationally? So from a national perspective, our our stance on it is we don't generally like the, the law in place. Okay. Um, it gener generally speaking, when the access to low cost and affordable services 
are available, there is more than enough compliance for us to solve the problem in terms of overpopulation of community. It really ends up being um, that lack of access to those resources, either there aren't enough of them or not close enough or whatever uh, that causes the problem. And what we've often found or too often have found is that the law ends up becoming another way of being punitive and you end up almost punishing people. And I know this isn't how you do it in Denver, but in a lot of places, they'll end up punishing people for basically being poor uh, because they couldn't afford the service or they couldn't get away from their hourly job to even be able to get their animal to the vet um, or to the low cost service. And so that that ends up becoming a barrier for pet ownership, which we don't want to do. Uh, I There are obviously examples. I think Denver's one of them. I think there are other places like San Antonio and Dallas who do the fix-it ticket type of things where it's like, here's the ticket, but if you get yourself into compliance and get your animal into compliance, um, we'll, we'll waive that ticket cost for you. Sure, and that's, Which, that's my philosophy is where... I don't want to see you spend $250 on a fine where you can go spend $75 or $50 on a spay and neuter, right? And so yeah. you're absolutely right. It can be used as a tool necessarily to motivate because sometimes people take our kindness for weakness in the field. They're just like, eh, the dog catcher, we don't really care. They're not going to do anything. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they don't understand the severity of, you know, what happens if if they have a large, pot, uh, you know, litter of puppies and then, you know, animals are sitting at the shelter and that stuff. So. Yeah. So as long as it's not punitive, we're, we're, we don't oppose it per se, um, because it can work in those types of situations. But I think, generally speaking, if you have the services available and you make them accessible, then it, the law is generally not necessary. Um, it, it will be on an individual basis, but not as a on a community one, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I remembered my question. <laughs> Um, just to clarify, because, you know, I don't, we've kind of talked about this on the um, podcast before about how most everybody cares and worries more about dogs than they do cats. I know, like when Mel was on, she, they didn't have anything for cats. So when you're looking at those numbers for, um, you know, live release rates and stuff like that and being a no-kill, is that just looking at dogs or is that for both cats and dogs or, you know, whatever so they may have? <laughs> yeah, it's for both dogs and cats. We haven't gotten into some of the other animals just because the tracking on that is a little bit more sporadic. So we are just focusing on dogs and cats right now. And I, but I think actually to your point, it's, there is a discrepancy between dogs and cats. So while dogs make up more than half of the animals that come in to shelters across the country, two out of every three animals that are killed in a shelter is a cat. So right. the cat programming is definitely an area that we spend a lot of effort and work on because um, that's where a lot of that need is. Awesome. Now, that goal of 90% live release rate in 2025, is that something, so you and I talked offline a few weeks ago where I believe the county of Pueblo in Colorado created it like in their legislation that mm -hmm. the, live, the live release rate. Is this a goal that Best Friends is shooting for just as a standard you know, operating procedure, not something that is going to 
blanket the United States as, as like a legislation in that sense. It, it's generally something that we don't support the legislation on. I okay. think it kind of going back to the, the previous thing of, you know, anytime there's legislation, there are unintended consequences of it, Absolutely. Uh, even if it is well-meaning and well-intended and generally even good. Um, so we really want to attack it from a, a programming and programmatic perspective versus a legislative one. Um, just because if you tell a shelter that they can't euthanize animals or can't put animals down due to space, but they don't have the programming in place um, to actually save them, then there becomes a, a gap there, right? That has to be solved. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, what you don't want to do is create that type of situation. And so we would rather focus on the programming and get that up to speed versus the legislative part. Before we jump into some of the field services stuff, and we've had Scott Giacopo on the show before, uh, we've talked about it a little bit last year. I want to, you and I talked again offline about the how similar best friends practices are in this whole wave of socially conscious sheltering is. Uh, it's it's very similar if you look if you if you took the names away and just looked at the practices the general practices it seems like it's almost identical and I don't know from your perspective if your teams have looked at that if there's a way to if you've communicated with the the folks with uh, socially conscious sheltering we don't in my personal opinion. We don't need two things that do the same thing. We just need a unified thing, right? If we're both shooting for the same goal, let's just shoot for the same goal. So we obviously have talked to them. Um, I would say that that is an area that probably we don't have the best relationship necessarily with them. But if you look at what they're doing from a socially conscious, like, yeah, like there's nothing that you would potentially even oppose for what they're putting out there in terms of uh, the types of programs and wanting to do right by each individual animal and, and for the animals in the community. The difference that we have on our side is that we are right now socially conscious doesn't have any measurables. Uh, so there's no measurement benchmarks um, where we feel like that 90% is at least a measurable benchmark. So you, somebody can't just say, hey, I'm I'm socially conscious or I'm no kill, but really not implement the programs around it, right? You you have to have some way of measuring it. Otherwise, it, it becomes meaningless. And mm-hmm. so um, we think that that's a really important benchmark for measuring the getting animals into homes. And I, I realize it's not that percentage may vary from community to community a little bit, but it's kind of stood the test, test of time. And you can see it across the country for um, the number of shelters and number of communities that have reached that threshold. Um, and so I think that lack of measurement is a pretty significant, like while it is programmatically very similar, I think that's a pretty substantial difference. And, you know, I don't think it's an either or, I think you can be no kill and socially conscious. And I think they, they work very well hand in hand. Uh, I would just love to see them have some measurements involved. I would imagine over time that that'll probably come into play. It is fairly new. It's just yeah. the last few years that it's kind of come out. And again, I think it was done in a, in a way uh, as a, as maybe a, an answer to what was going on in Pueblo at that time, because the buzz in Colorado was this no kill movement. And then to see the way that those animals are treated and what was going on down there definitely uh, put a, I think, put a bad 
name onto no kill at that point. And, you know, a lot of people in our industry from the field services standpoint, if you hear no kill, you hear this advocate, right? You hear this like tree hugger, bunny hugger that just wants to save everything. <laughs> and to be honest with you, as I, you know, as, as I've evolved in this profession, you know, my, my outlook on the job is I just want to help people and animals. And if we can do that in a way that we're not putting animals that are a threat to public safety back in the community, I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you call it no kill. I don't care if you call it socially conscious sheltering. As long as we're doing what's right by the community and, and making sure that it is safe and the animals are safe, that to me is the end goal. Totally, totally agree with you. And, you know, I think that's one of maybe the misperceptions about best friends from time to time is that there is the perception of like, oh, if you work with best friends, you're going to have to hang the, the bright orange banner up in our shelter that says, you know, we're no kill or whatever. I work with a lot of shelters who don't necessarily like the terminology. They want to do their own thing. And that's cool. Like, uh, I, I'm not as attached to the name as I am the fact that let's do right by the animals and let's save their lives. And uh, if we can agree on that, and I think most of us in this industry can, then we'll, let's, let's have a good conversation about how to do that and, and not let the language get in the way of having that conversation. Absolutely. Well, let's jump into some of the field services stuff that uh, Best Friends also, also offers. I, I believe it's some of the same resources that you offer for shelters. Yeah. It's very much the same. Um, really, it's recognizing the fact that the shelter and the field services side are shouldn't be separate. They should be working for a, a common goal and uh, understanding that important role that the, the field plays um, in how the shelter is perceived, how welfare of animals is perceived in the community. And so it's really a lot of those same services of we do evaluations on the field side. Um, and, and do some assessments there. We provide a ton of training, a ton of resources on our, our site. We've got a humane animal control manual that if you haven't checked out, you should definitely check out. Um, really, it's just a comprehensive look of like in many communities, the field officers are then on the front lines and like the first interaction somebody has with somebody in animal welfare in their community is the field officer. And so that plays a really important role in what we're doing. And so we offer a lot of those same services and a lot of the life-saving happens out in the field. You know, I know that you, you and I've talked a lot uh, in different places about just the, the movement to return to owner in the field um, so that those animals never have to come into the shelter, which is an easier thing for the animals, an easier thing for the community, and is an easier thing for um, the shelter to not have to, you know, process and then immediately rehome them, um, type of thing. And so those types of services, I think the mitigation around TNR and community cats is another area where field officers play a huge role. And so we do a lot of training in those areas uh, to help them with conflict mitigation in that. Um. Brent, so talking about kind of going back to what you and Dan were just talking about um, with merging multiple organizations, you guys and and sheltering, whatever the, I, the whatever the other one was. Sorry, socially conscious sheltering. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. <laughs> My brain does, is not functioning yet. Um, there are mel multiple apps out there for us out in the field. Um, I know that there's at least one that a microchip company is working out, uh, working with right now where you can 
um, check for the microchip. You put the microchip number in and then it checks their data system. It checks AHA's data system. If there's a photo, it gives you that and it gives you the contact information. But there's multiple different apps. Is is there ever maybe a chance that to help us return uh, return to the owner in the field that you guys could work with all these different companies to create one app again having multiple <laughs> that would be ones. so nice oh my god could you imagine it, like yeah we'd be so, able to do so much more <laughs> yeah it, it's amazing how fragmented things have gotten um particularly on that side of things i do know that there are talks um that are happening to try to make that happen but you know it's all time resources money uh and then you know the competitiveness of ownership yeah. of it that you have to work through so i it's coming but i don't can't tell you when or how uh, or okay, by that's good news um that's because good news. It, that i'm sure all of that's going to have to still be worked out it's the it's the worst when you you know you get a microchip you call a company and they're like yeah we didn't we're not the one that you know has the information you have to call this company it would be nice for them from the back end to just be able to go onto the app put the put the chip number in and we get like the backdoor access so it gives yeah. you everything you need and bypasses talking to anybody on the phone like i no disrespect to the call takers but i don't need to wait on hold i don't need that just <laughs> right well, the, it, yeah, it's just unnecessary apps, at this point it is yeah one of the apps that um i got to test out for a couple of days every time you pick up an animal you can take a picture of it and it automatically goes into the database so if you ever pick up that animal again it'll keep a record that yeah you've already seen this animal to go a little further and i'm sure pet owners may or may not like this but i want vet veterinary and medical records attached to the microchip number so yes it's, uh, it's one central place let me get off my soapbox because i'm gonna get too far ahead of myself <laughs> Brett, you listened to last week's show, and I know you're very familiar with the KC Pet Project. It is something that, uh, you know, is probably close to you in a lot of ways. And uh, we, we had a great conversation with them last week. We did discuss some of their field operations stuff as well. And command presence, what does that look like from Best Friends? What is their advice on command presence and their safety? You know, it's something that we're... You may or may not love this, but we're fairly agnostic on. Um, we like I've seen it work where people are out in their polo shirts and their tactical pants, and that works in some communities. Uh, being in the full tactical um, equipment with the badges and the vests works in other communities. And you know, I think having seen it work, regardless of what they're wearing, we're at, we at Best Friends are way more concerned about what those interactions look like and how that relationship and service is being managed versus what people are wearing because i think um it can that can just be i don't think that that's the most important part of all of it and so uh, we tend to be agnostic let the community decide for itself and the leadership decide for themselves how they want to handle that um we just want to be sure that that relationship and how the officers approach each interaction is what we want to focus on. I completely agree with that statement as far as how how you interact with people. I do believe that uh, on some levels we need to be identifiable through, and, and I'm not saying we need to be in our class A uniforms, even though we don't have class A uniforms. <laughs> Bishop, do you have class A's? 
No. Okay. So, but what I, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine with us being in a, a polo, but we, we still do have the badge. Uh, we, we wear a bulletproof vest underneath our clothing. It's not an outer vest. Uh, what is your take on, on those? I, again, I think what may be necessary in one community may or may not be necessary in another one. And so, um, for us, again, organizationally, we've just been fairly agnostic on it of letting the leaders in the community and the, the field officers themselves uh, make the decision of what they feel best and most comfortable with, uh, as opposed to us being prescriptive on it. Do you think, I, so I guess with with the field services, do you feel that like Community-wise, like we live in the United States where guns are everywhere. Uh, you can't even mm -hmm. buy ammunition right now. Would you uh, would you feel that like community-wise, regardless of the community, it's still probably in the best interest of a department to wear, to have their officers wear vests? Would you say that like police officers shouldn't wear bulletproof vests? I... I would, I'm probably not the right person to be talking about police officers, but, um, you know, I obviously from a protective standpoint, they're, they're important to be able to provide protection, um, especially for police officers who are out in the field. Um, I understand that they're, you know, the animal control field officers, um, end up in a lot of those similar types of situations. And I think if you're going to find yourself in a lot of those types of situations, it could be advisable. Um, but I don't know that it has to be every officer in every community type of thing. So again, I, I, I certainly don't oppose it, but it's not something that we, we spend a lot of our resources promoting either. Okay. So in some of the national organizations like NACA, and code three offer uh, grants, right? So there's there's grant money to protect their officers for that. Because as you know, we deal, like you said, we deal with, t uh, statistically, we deal with more calls per day than police officers. And then we also deal with clearly the same individuals at times. And, and there are plenty, plenty of links that show that. And so uh, from a national standpoint, it looks like the focus is on just just making sure officers feel safe when they're in the community and so having that bulletproof vest to protect them is one way to feel safe right yes yes bishop you work for a police department mm -hmm. you have you was there ever a time where that wasn't an option for you is it is it mandatory to wear is it part of your you know policies and procedures how does that work um it's not mandatory for me to wear, um, but immediately after hiring, um, I was issued one. Now, I actually recently had a conversation with my supervisor because the one I was issued was never actually fitted for me. It was always hand-me-down, um, sure. and, the, and the one I'm currently in is coming up on five years, so they may be looking at getting me one that was is actually fitted for me um but even our community service officers who are high school students riding around on bikes writing municipal citations for open intoxicants and underage smoking and our parking control they all have because we all are affiliated with the police department and there is a bad 
image out there right now and it's dangerous within the law enforcement um no matter what your role is all of our people that are out on the road are wearing vests yeah well the show's take on it and it's not to knock you uh brent or best friends or casey pet project we and i'll speak for ashley here and ashley if, if you don't like what i'm about to say too bad uh <laughs> We, we do. We stand behind officers needing to have that protective equipment, whether it's bulletproof vests, uh, whether it's um, and, I, and I don't I don't say that from a standpoint of like we need this. And Brent, you, you know, from our conversation, I take a really, uh, relaxed approach to how I enforce in the field. Uh, I, I certainly value and appreciate the ability to speak with people in a way that's respectful and come up with resolutions. My concern is as we grow into whatever world this is going to look like post uh, COVID is people are going to be just at a higher, um, what's that word? A higher boiling point, or I guess a lower boiling point would be at more accurate where just seeing somebody, even in a polo uh, or seeing the vehicle, uh, coming to their door are going to be defense defensive because their animal is all they may have, right? That is a family. Yep. Member. And so there may not even be questions asked. It might just be gunfire right from the get go. And so having that, just that thin layer of protective equipment that goes under your uniform, I think is extremely important. So well, I didn't, and, and not to, I, I just want to mention that like, you know, you and I talked long before this was even a topic. So I just want to make it clear that you're not, you know, we're not here today to, to really discuss it. I just wanted to make sure we got your take and best friend's take on it. Yeah. And, 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 and again, like I, I certainly think that is, we respect that that would be a decision that you would make for your, your team and your officers. So we're not, we're not opposing that per se. Yeah, no, I didn't. And it didn't sound like Casey pet project was opposing it either. It truly just sounded like in the infancy stages, it may not be something that they, you know, wanted to do, or maybe even had the funding. And that's why, you know, I wanted to mention that there are some grants out there. So as we move on, I, I think it's important that we talk about the facility of Best Friends in Utah, because I hear some great things about it. And I'd love to kind of know a little bit more about it. Yeah, so Best Friends runs, we have now four brick and mortar facilities um, across the country. And then we also run what is the largest sanctuary uh, in the country uh, out in Kanab, Utah, which is down in the foothill hills, kind of in between Zion National Park and Grand Staircase Escalante in southern Utah. And so it's we have anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 animals uh, on site out there. For, and, and unlike what we do in my world where we're focusing on dogs and cats, the sanctuary really is a sanctuary for um, all kinds of animals. And so we have a, a fairly large um, bird population out there. Uh, obviously there's a need with birds because they have really long lives and often outlive their owners. And so we end up with a, a lot of birds out there, horses, pigs, goats, um, just the whole gamut of stuff um, out at the sanctuary. And it's funny before I joined Best Friends and I've been with Best Friends for a little over four years, I used to hear about how beautiful it was uh, out at the sanctuary, you know, out there in Southern Utah. And I was like, yeah, 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 I've been to a lot of beautiful places. I'm sure it's nice, but it really is a beautiful setting uh, for sanctuary care for um, animals out there. And we do adoptions out of the facility um, 
out of the sanctuary. Uh, but then there are also a lot of animals out there that are, are going to live out their, their final days uh, with us, which is awesome for them as well, uh, because it's, it is really set up for that long-term quality of care uh, and amazing people and staff out of the sanctuary. Is, is there any volunteer opportunities out there? Like I know, you know, I've deployed with the ASPCA to volunteer with various things. If that was something that, you know, anybody in our field wanted to do, would that be an option? It absolutely is. In fact, there are a lot of people who plan their annual vacation to come out and uh, volunteer for a week out at the sanctuary. And then some people who do it as a one-time bucket list trip to come out and volunteer. So yeah, we absolutely have volunteer opportunities out there in all with all species of animals. Nice. Is there restrictions right now due to COVID? Should people just check the website to see yeah. more? Yeah, it, Utah has, because the state of Utah obviously is involved too, um, it kind of fluctuates in and out. So there are some restrictions. Um, we are trying to keep it tight with known and close volunteers right now. Uh, one of the things about the sanctuary is it has become a little bit of a tourist attraction and we used to do like guided tours of it and stuff. Uh, now we've created a separate um, self-guided recording that you can listen to and, and drive around on your own. And, and obviously you're not getting into all the animal care areas at that point. Um, but it is something we've had to, had to scale back a little bit because of COVID restrictions, obviously. I, I didn't mean to giggle, but it's not like Tiger King out there, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it is definitely not that. Um, I, I think horses are the um, most, the largest animals that we have out there. there. There aren't like bears and tigers and stuff. So for our listeners, you mentioned a, a website earlier. Can you give that again? It was the networking one, I believe. Yeah, so it's network.bestfriends.org. And that's where a lot of our resources um, exist for shelters and for the animal control facility or for the animal control field officers, field service officers. I'll get the name right. It could be. No, we don't know. We don't know the name either, man. Uh, So you're fine. um, But that's where a lot of those things are. So there's a lot of manuals. We have playbooks for all of them. We also have some e learning modules that we've set up. Uh, So really a comprehensive. Um, just for a of things for people to explore uh, topics that are interesting to them. And then if there's something that you want more help in, we've got a team of about 30 of us that this is our job is to help uh, shelters and field service officers um, answering questions, helping them with trainings and that sort of thing that might be more specific and that they can feel free to reach out to us at any point. Is there a cost associated with help? No, it is our, I mean, it's our mission is to help that is folks. so cool and so, that is it, so cool. it is all paid for by our our generous donors uh for best friends well let's thank the donors for that because you're basically what you're saying is there is a complete line of resources available at no cost for someone that's listening today whether it's just looking at maybe policies and procedures for their department how they operate or how to help with uh a higher live release rate than you may have in your shelter and just maybe not having those tools or maybe just thinking that I don't want to get involved with an organization like best friends because of what the, the history or what I've heard about them versus what I actually know. And what I'm hearing is if somebody was at a, let's say they had a high kill rate because they just don't, they don't have the tools and resources available 
by them joining best friends, they're not married to this. You have to be at 90% by a certain time. Correct. And honestly, the majority of the shelters, when I said we were working with like 129 shelters, like yeah. most, most of those aren't no-kill shelters right now. Like sure. the reason we're working with them is because there's a gap that we're, we're trying to close with them. And, and I think it's one of those things that can be scary because, you know, it, it is uncomfortable to have somebody look behind the curtain of what's going on and that you feel like that's going to come with a certain amount of judgment. And I'll, I'll just tell you that this team, almost all of us come from backgrounds where we've been in shelters that had to unnecessarily kill animals in space. Uh, and that's unfortunate for, uh, for whoever's in that situation. It's not a situation anybody wants to be in, but we know that this work is hard and that everybody's doing the best that they can. And if there are things that we can do to help them, it comes judgment free. It comes with the, um, knowledge that there are, that everybody's working and everybody cares. It's just that we need to improve some things and, and, and help fix some things. And, and there may be resource gaps. And so, um, I think that's a really important part of people understanding that it is that there's a lot of empathy that comes with it because I think we've all been in those shoes and we know it, it some days suck uh, in this. And so I will say that that is, I, I personally find that very impressive because I came originally from a shelter where we did, you know, we didn't euthanize if we didn't have to, but there was obviously a space issue at times and things like that. Um, but we did our best at the time with what we had. Um, and I know when we moved into our new building, we got a whole new board that just the board of directors had no idea what we were dealing with. Um, so to know that you guys as an organization out there helping everybody with this, actually understands where they're coming from i think is absolutely huge yeah it, and i think that that is one of the areas where when you, when you were talking daniel about the advocates um can sometimes have a little bit more of a unicorn and rainbows type of approach to it and like it's not all that like it's hard work and it's figuring out like it's one thing to decide that you don't want to euthanize for space but it's another thing to like where do they go and figuring out a good landing spot for each individual animal is is the challenge and so uh yeah it's it's hard we know it's hard and and we want to be a good partner for it because there are more than enough people out there telling shelters that they need to do better um but not a lot of folks out there that are helping them actually do better and we want to be that that helper fantastic we love that and honestly i can't I, I can't express our gratitude enough for you taking the time out today to come onto the program but also just educating us and our listeners so we have a better understanding that best friends is here to help and and we need to be able to put our i think our bias aside and look at it from a standpoint as how do we help the animals and the people in our community and move past this, well, best friends is just this no-kill advocate that all they want to do is, you know, save every animal and put these dangerous animals out in the community. Through my research and our conversation today, that's not the case. The case is you actually are here to provide a safe community for the people in the animals. And if we can hit that 90% benchmark, that's a, that's a, a great 
I, I guess, a, a great caveat to have for it. But in the beginning or in the meantime, let's just work on, you know, standardizing our practices to make sure that we're, you know, meeting meeting that community expectation of a safe a safe place for our animals to live and a safe place for our people to live. Exactly, and I appreciate you allowing me to to come on and and talk about it a little bit because I it does pain me that there are misperceptions out there, but um, saving animals' lives and public safety and um, supporting the community out uh, with you know, service oriented field services, they're all interrelated and uh, they don't, don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think we can all work together to um, kind of drive them all forward at the same time. Well, after today, I think it's safe to say that we're the three best friends that anyone <laughs> could have. The three best friends. All right. I'll Careful. Stop. The, we don't want to have to pay for that, Dan. <laughs> um, Brent. Uh, first, first and foremost, man, I, I just want to, again, thank you personally. I'm glad that we were able to connect prior to this podcast. I'm glad to have you as a contact in my phone and continue to, to, to hopefully create a friendship out of this. And, and hopefully we can even have you back on someday. Would love that. And thank you. And, and likewise, it's been great to get to know both of you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know that you guys are out there and to give more support to shelters i know i've got some up here that probably could use some assistance um so knowing that i can give them some direction not specifically my shelter my shelter actually just hit their 90 percent uh last year so awesome they, congrats that's they've awesome been, they've been working hard at that that's um but yeah, definitely i plan on passing on your information and i'm i was very happy to have you on today Thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome, Brent. Enjoy your weekend or what's left of it. And uh, hopefully uh, your Chiefs come out victor victorious. We'd like to see the that player uh, that was mentioned last week, again, sponsor some adoptions for the KC Shelter. So that's pretty cool. That'd be awesome, too. Thanks again for your time. And we look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you both. Thanks. All right, Bishop, that's episode 67 in the books. That was really good. That was one of my favorite episodes, I think, to this point. We've had a lot of good ones this year, but yeah, that was that was a great episode. And hopefully everybody will get some more information. You know, the information out on their website is free to everybody. Go check it out. See if there's anything you can take back to your supervisors and be like, hey, Here's the national organization that is advising that this is the best practice. Let's see if we can work it into our, you know, programs. And one of my biggest things is just clarifying misconceptions in our profession, period. Whether that's us as the dog catcher or today, uh, best friends as this, like, you know, as we talked uh, amongst groups, you know, and when I started in this profession, you know, best friends was that, um, Oh, who are those people? Or, you know, that, that just negative perception. And the more that I've learned about them and the more that I've worked with them, uh, I'm grateful for everything that they provide. And I hope today that can change some of uh, our listeners' perceptions as well. Absolutely. So don't forget to check out our website again, humaneroundup.com. Check out that anonymous email link. If you have a question you want to send to us, feel free to do that. Feel free to uh, reach out to us on social media as well. 
as uh, we're here, Humane Officer Bishop or HO Bishop and Animal Protection Officer Daniel. I'm sure you can find best friends on social media as well. So check out their website too. You got anything else for him today, Bishop? Um, I don't think so. Well, you know what? We had that article that we had last week um, about the humane officer that got bit by a rabid animal. There wasn't much in there, though. So I'd like to say if that was you, I, I, would, love to hear, yeah, I would love to hear more about it, um, what kind of animal it was and how that happened. Um, are you pre-vaccinated? Yeah, matter of fact, I, I I have to check my titer, but I am vaccinated against rabies. So, oh shit, that's right. I gotta check my titer too soon. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to episode sixty-seven. And as always on the Humane Roundup podcast, we'll leave you with keep it humane, humane. <laughs> better. Thank you for listening to the Humane Roundup podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch with us? Visit HumaneRoundup.com. Email us at HumaneRoundup at gmail.com. Text us or leave us a voicemail at 916-241-3464. Or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Humane Roundup. Humane Roundup.